Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Ah, uh, there he is. Welcome to a special Thursday night edition of The Grueling Truth. I'm your host, Mike Goodpaster, and this is our third straight night of shows. On Tuesday, we had Roger Craig. Last night, we had Leon Searcy. And I invite everybody to check out the Red Light Sports Network. It's got a podcast of both of those shows, and it'll have tonight's show also. Um, of course, I want to welcome in now my co-host, as always, Matt Andrew Scavage. Good evening, Mike. Uh, glad to, always glad to be here, and always good to talk to uh, former NFL players uh, about their careers and uh, get their thoughts on uh, what the game was like when they were playing. Well, our guest tonight is Gary Jeter. We had him on the show last week. Um, we talked about his uncle Bob, who was a legendary cornerback with the Green Bay Packers back in the '60s with Vince Lombardi. Um, we decided to have him back this week so we can talk about his career. He was a 1985 Comeback Player of the Year. How you doing tonight, Gary? I'm doing pretty good, man. How about yourself? All right. You had me worried there. You called right at the 10 o'clock thing, man. <laughs> I tell you what, I, let me tell you what, I, I, I have myself worried. You know, we need to have this show on earlier, man. You know, I mean, you know, at my age, you know, you know, staying up this late, man, it's kind of tough. Hey, remember this, Gary. I sent you a message earlier in the week telling you we could do 6.30 if you wanted instead, and you said 11. Yeah, but, you know, 6, 6.30 is dinner time, you know, so that's tough, too. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But it's great, man. I'm glad. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I, uh, I'm up and, and I'm alert and I'm raring I'm to go. All right. Sounds good. Well, my first question is this. I mean, you went to high school in northeastern Ohio. Um, most guys coming out of northeastern Ohio, especially recruit as highly sought after as you, would normally go to an Ohio State, Notre Dame, or Michigan. What made you want to attend the University of Southern California? Well, you know, I think it was a matter of being over-recruited. Um, you know, recruiting had started so early for me, um, as early as, like, the 10th grade. Well, my high school coach and um, Dick Walker, who was the defensive backfield coach at Ohio State, they were best best men uh, at each wedding, at each other's weddings. And so what happened was these guys were always around, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, I was, I was going down to Ohio State and and and, and making unofficial visits. Notre Dame was around, Michigan was around, and I don't know, man. You know, just when it came down to it, when Southern Cal came, man, it was different. I'd never been to California. And uh, went out there, and, and uh, uh, Coach Wayne Fonts was from Canton, Ohio. Uh, he was a defensive backfield coach at Ohio State. They had just won the national championship. 
And it was, you know, he you said, man, the sunshine, pretty women, gee, come on out here, man. You won another national championship. And, and, you know, I went out there, and, man, it was everything he said it was. Um, and I just decided just to take a leap of faith, man. I just, you know, I I, I was a kind of an immature kid at the time, man. And I, I needed, I, I really needed to grow up. And, and so I just, I just went as far as I could go, man. And I went to Sunday Cal and, and uh, I got the opportunity to start as a freshman, and uh, you know I never looked back. You know everything uh, worked out the way that it, 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 it that it should have worked out, but you know I had to take that leap of faith first, and um, and I did. Gary, this is Matt. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say uh, welcome to the show, and I really appreciate you taking taking time to be with us tonight. Hey, you know what? I, I appreciate. It. I just uh, I want you guys both to send me a year's supply of dodos. Uh, <laughs> going forward, seeing up this late, but uh, no, I, I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. <laughs> the question I got for you is, uh, uh, what was it like for you to play for the legendary uh, John McKay and also later uh, John Robinson? It was great. You know, John McKay was one of those. I mean, he was a no nonsense guy, man. Didn't yell a lot. Uh, as a matter of fact, didn't yell at all. You know, it was. It was kind of a weird existence with Coach McKay. You know, he rode around on this golf cart that was electric. It didn't make any noise. It just kind of hummed. Uh, on the sides, he, he used to have, uh, like, all the years that he won the national championship, 62, 67, 72. Uh, and he, had, he always had, the, he always had the, the little golf hat on, um, and he had, he had glasses. And you never knew what was going on with the guy. And then he would honk the horn, and the whole practice would stop. And everybody would turn around, point to an assistant coach. That assistant coach would run over. He would yell at that assistant coach, and then that assistant coach would run over, say if it was uh, my defensive line coach, Mark Goo, and then he would yell at, you know, whoever McKay wanted him to yell at. And so everything was done, like everything was real professional. We didn't practice real long, but we practiced we practiced hard and very efficient. And the only way you knew that McKay how he felt about you if you read it in the paper, he used to have this saying, and it goes like I've ever seen. You know, like Gary Jeter was the quickest I've ever seen, the strongest I've ever seen, uh, the toughest I've ever seen. And if you ever saw that behind your name, I've ever seen, then you knew Coach McKay thought something about you. But other than that, man, he didn't, he, you know, he never yelled at us. You know, uh, he gave the calmest uh, a pregame speeches. It was just a different type of existence. But in that room were some of the greatest athletes that you've ever seen. And when it was time to play, we all played. Yeah, that was the, the thing about them is we had Leon Searcy from the U on last night. And, I mean, I, for me, growing up, the two biggest dynasties I saw in college football were USC in the 70s up until about 1980, and then the U in the, or in the 80s and the early 90s. What was it like to play at a college like that where when you stepped on the field, you just knew you were going to win? Well, you know what? I mean, you just had the confidence, man. You know, you just didn't, you know, in my four years of uh, college, we lost eight times. And we lost four times in one year. 
after we had gone seven and zero, after John McKay had decided he was going to go pro. Um, it was just one of those situations where you know we you know we had the best players. You know, I mean, every year like guys like Lynn Swan and Richard Wood and. I mean, all these great players were going pro, and then they weren't just going pro; they were becoming they were stars in the pros. You know, OJ uh, OJ Simpson was already there, um, and it was just one of those situations where everything they said came to fruition. So it was a situation where it was your time up, swing. You didn't even hesitate. I mean, you just okay, fine. It's my turn. You know, it was like, you know, I started four years. Now, when I became a senior, it was like, okay, yes, I'm going to be a first-round draft choice. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to a bad team. I'm going to go to the pros. I'm going to have a good pro career. And that's just the way it was. And everybody from Southern Cal, just like from the U, you know, which I saw, they had this kind of – you had this chip on your shoulder. You had a little bit of polish. You had some swagger. You had all these ingredients. But, you know, when it came time to play, the guys at the U, just like the guys at, at SC, man, we, we came to play, man. And it was all the years that I was in the NFL. I played, you know, I played 13. I was on a roster for 14 years. We led the NFL in number of players on NFL rosters. I mean, and it wasn't even close. I think the, the, the second best team was uh, – was Notre Dame at that time. And then I think I think maybe the U passes up. I don't even think they pass us up later. But it was just one of those situations there where guys just you know, those guys were always around. After the season was over with, uh the NFL season, they would come back and you see the O. J. Simpson and you you know, you saw the Richard Woods, the Anthony Davis was the Lynn Swan and I can go down the list, man, all great, you know, Booker Browns. You saw all these great players that came back, and then, you know, you were like, well, what, what's it like? Oh, man, hey. Hey, you know what? I played against tougher guys in college. And so you just like, when you when you had your opportunity to go pro, you just said to yourself, hey, you know, you've already been schooled, well-schooled. you practiced against the best. you played against the best. And now it's your turn to step up to the plate. So don't even think about it. You know, just go ahead and swing. Just swing away. And that's what and that's what guys did. And it worked out. You know, you were talking about how uh USC had so many uh guys go pro. Uh in nineteen seventy seven when you were drafted, three of the first five players were from USC. What was your draft day experience like, uh, when you're watching your teammates get picked and what was the overall experience like for you? Well, you know, it was kind of different, man, because you know it was always like it was already a foregone conclusion. Um, it was um, Ricky went first to Tampa. You know, everybody knew that for you know because McKay was already down there and he wanted Ricky. Um, and then number two was uh, Tony Dorsett. He was uh, Seattle was going to take him, but he didn't want to go to Seattle, so they swapped that pick with Dallas. I was supposed to have gone number three with Cincinnati. Cincinnati didn't pay any money, and so they took Eddie Edwards. You know, I just told him I wasn't going to come there because, you, you know, I mean, they had, year after year, guys would hold out, and, you know, Cincinnati didn't pay. 
the number four pick was uh, Marvin Powell. My college, we were, when we were freshmen, we were roommates. He went to the Jets, and then I was selected five by the Giants. And you know, I had no idea the Giants. I hadn't even know. I had never even talked about it. Uh, uh, been uh, contacted by the Giants. I thought I was going to go to number six uh, with the Saints. Uh, Hank Stram was down there. Uh, after those, all those years in Kansas City, those great years in Kansas City, he was down there at, uh, at New Orleans, and I had gone, I had he had flown me down, and we had talked. So that's what I thought uh, I was going to go. But uh, you know, it was different back then. You know, you didn't go to the, you didn't, you know, only one guy went to uh, New York. There wasn't really a lot of fanfare, man. It wasn't, you know, I was, I, I remember when I think about it, I remember seeing Marvin being interviewed. You know, naturally, you know, Ricky got all of the fanfare being the number one pick. Uh, I was being interviewed, but you know, it wasn't really a big deal back then, man. It was uh, as it is now. You know, now it's a now it's a presentation, man. It's a, you know, it's like a, like the Academy Awards and stuff. You know, guys are getting suited up. And, you know, guys getting watches and being, you know, driven all around New York City, and, and so it was a it was a different deal. I could imagine. You know, I I think that. If there was anything that I would want to do over, I think that if I could just do that draft day over and do it like they do it now, I mean, it, I mean, it looks. I mean, they, you know, they bring in. I mean, hey, I mean, back then uh, the draft was on Saturday. Um, I got to call at nine fifteen uh, Pacific Coast time, which is twelve fifteen. The draft started at noon, and I was drafted by quarter after. My quarter after twelve, I was, you know, I was a member of the Junk Hits. So, I think, like I said, if if I could do one thing over again, I wish I could do that over. You wish you well, could you give uh, Commissioner uh, Commissioner Roselle a bro hug the way they do now. No, I don't know about that bro hug stuff, man. That's just that's Johnny <laughs> come later stuff, man. You know, I just give him, you know, I think we were giving him the we we had the brother handshake, you know, where it was like, you know, we kind of go through the whole commotion and. No, yeah, we weren't going through all that, man. You know, I I was just looking. <laughs> no, I mean, it, but it's nice. You know, it's nice, man. You know, I, I give Goodell credit, man, for being there. And, and, you know, it's you know, it's a big deal, man. It's really a big deal, man. And, you know, back then we weren't making any money. Hell, you know, we were probably making a little bit more than a janitor was, was getting paid in New York City. And, uh, you know, now, I mean, these guys are, I mean, these guys are, are millionaires, man, right away. You know, so. I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, it's a it's a really big deal, man. And you know, some of these, you know, some of these guys have entourages they bring with them up to New York. So I mean, but uh, you know, it's definitely life changing. Life definitely a life changing experience. Well, um, with the Giants, I mean, in the Giants of the seventies, the one thing most people remember is the miracle at the Meadowlands game with the fumble. Herman Edwards picks it up runs it back for a touchdown. What few people realize is I think you and the Eagles were both like five and four, six and five. And after that game the Eagles go on to make the playoffs. I don't think you guys won another game. What was it like to be with that team after that happened? And I mean, do you believe that was the reason that team fell apart? Yes, answer your question, yes. I we I think we were both for five and six, if I can recall. So Whoever wins that game goes six and six. Uh, we didn't win another game, uh, and the Eagles, I think, won a couple. Of, I don't know. I think they had a couple, a loss or something, but it catapulted them into early success. I think they made the playoffs that year, the Eagles, 
And then the next year they went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Raiders, you know. But it actually catapulted us into a different direction. It catapulted us into the, the toilet. They ended up firing John McVay, who, who you know, who ended up out in San Francisco. Um, they fired uh, Andy Robustelli, was replaced by George Young. George Young came in and hired Ray Perkins to take over the helm. Now, Ray Perkins, you know, I think we had one winning season in his tenure, but the framework was in place to go forward. I mean, he brought in coaches like Parcells, Belichick, and Romeo Cornell were on the defensive side. And so you could see where, you know, the right people were were starting to come in, whereas before we didn't have the talent on the field like we should have, and we definitely didn't have the coaching staff. So after that game, you know, the, the offensive coordinator was fired for the Giants. Um, you know, I mean, everything was shaken up. The league got involved. Uh, because the the Giants had become a laughing stock, and so subsequently, excuse me, the uh, the league um, assigned uh, George Young to come to uh, the Giants, and uh, you know now the rest is history, man. When I look back on it, like you know, I can still remember looking across the field at Old Giants Stadium. But seeing the Dallas Cowboys with Hollywood Henderson and Too Tall and Harvey Martin, Randy White. I mean, you know, Tony Dorsett. I mean, you go down the list. Roger Staubach. I mean, Newhouse. And said, man, oh, man, will we ever, ever get to that level? You know, I said, man, you know, it may never happen. And it was amazing. Uh, in, in a relatively short period of time, uh, the Giants won their first Super Bowl in 86, and then they won in 91, and they won uh, the two this most recent. And now they have four. Super Bowls, and uh, and it's amazing when I think back how those events in 1979, that fumble, a game that I mean the game was over, man. I mean, I saw I saw it again on TV. I mean yesterday, and it was just a stupid play, man. On our, I mean, I I I still to this day, you don't when you don't have to run a play, why do you run a play? All you have to do is kneel on the ball. The only reason that Herm Edwards is even up on the line of scrimmage, we're, you know, it, it's, a, it's a kneel down. It's like, hey, when the game's over with. And, you know, it's one of those situations where a coach is telling a fifth-string quarterback in Joe Pasarczyk to run the ball, do this what I say. If you don't do this, you're, you'll be relegated to what? Fifth-string again? So then Joe goes and runs the play. You have Zonka, and you have, uh, you have Zonka in the backfield along with uh, Kokomo. Um, and uh, they said they're not going to take the ball. And so he does a reverse pivot, which is, which is stupid in itself. Instead of a nice open handoff, if you're going to hand the ball off, he does a reverse pivot. You have both running backs, Doug Coder and Larry Zonka, are going away from him. When when Joe Pasarczyk reverse pivots, he tries to reach out and give the ball to Zonka, who's not even looking to take the ball. He hits Zonka on the hip. 
Perm is standing right there. The ball takes a, you know, you know, I mean, a football takes a basketball bounce right into the arms of Herman Edwards, and he just strides into the end zone. And I've never, and, and this is what I remember vividly. I was living in the, I was living in the Cliffside Park, New Jersey, and I was renting a room from a guy uh, in the Winston Towers. And on the top level, there was this uh, face of New York City. On the Hudson was this party room. And I had this party set up, man. It was just like, hey, man, you know, we're going to beat the Eagles, you know, six and six. Hey, man, you know, we're turning this thing around. And I was going up and down and saying, hey, man, you guys come, that guy's coming to the party. You guys come to the party. And then all of a sudden, I just kind of heard this, what the, you know, I mean, I hear this. What the, you know, there's a whole, a whole bunch of what this, you know, and you can imagine what follow that. And so I turn around, I'm like, you know, I, I'm saying this, I'm like, what the hell is what's going on? And I'm figuring, you know, they're going to call the play back, man, there's something wrong, there's a penalty. Nothing was called back. The Eagles win the game. And it was just, I mean, you look at all these years later, man, we're still a, a part of, uh, you know, we're still a part of NFL lore on the negative side. I mean, we're we're in the same category as like a Jim Marshall running the ball the wrong way, and and Gerald your premium, you know, throwing the interception for a touchdown in the Super Bowl as a kicker. And I mean, you know, it was just stupid, man. And and you know, what's really funny is that I live right in between New York and Philadelphia, so I get a chance to listen to the Philadelphia crowd. And you know, I am. So happy, and I hope those Southern girls are listening. I am so happy that the Eagles have never won anything. You know, they have won the Super Bowl. They've been ah. twice, and all they do is bitch and moan and bitch and moan. And we don't have a we don't have a franchise quarterback in Super Bowl. It's Super Bowl. Well, okay, you know what? The NFL championship used to be the Super Bowl. You won in 1960 with Chuck Bergenary. God bless his soul. Great guy. Got a chance to meet the guy, man. What a tough son of a guy. Um, uh, who just passed away just recently. Um, but, you know, they haven't won anything. And the Giants have gone on to win four Super Bowls. They've played in five. And, uh, I, you know, like I said, I still remember it to this day, man, just like it was yesterday. And Herm is a friend of mine. Herm. Here's the irony of it. Herm, Herm showed me around on a recruiting trip when I went to the University of California, Berkeley, you know, back in 1973. He showed me around. And uh, I think he, he transferred from Cal, and he ended up finishing up at San Diego State. And it was funny. He ends up playing with the Eagles. And, you know, whatever, you know, we played him twice a year. And, you know, I mean, and I, I think I was crying. I, th- I mean, you know, there was, you know, tears, you know, and I remember Herm saying, keep your head up. And I was just like, Herm, man, how in the blank, man, did I end up here? I said, man, after being on top of the football world college-wise, I end up in New York with the New York Giants, a team that never even contacted me before the draft. And now that I'm a part of this nonsense, but – it's funny how fate is. A couple years later, you know, when we keep drafting, you know, good players, we get a guy called Lawrence Taylor 
arguably the best football player to ever play. And then it, then things turned around, man. And uh, you know, like I said, it, it it I look at it. I I think that I can say I can honestly say that we were the building blocks of the future. You know, I mean, you know, you know, somebody has to has to share the pain of of building, and you know, and we did. You know, you bring up Lawrence Taylor and uh, and how. You guys were the foundation for the future, which ended up being a, a Super Bowl win in '86. You know, what was it like uh, in that very special 1981 season when Lawrence was drafted? Do you have any uh, experiences with uh, with him in his rookie year? You like to share? Well, sure. I, I tell you what, it was really funny, man. I was, uh, you know, like I had just come off my best year um, as, as a Giant. You know, after almost teetering on bust bus range, you know. In the first four years, I had four different defensive line coaches. So, you know, they wanted to do it four different ways. So then all of a sudden I run into a defensive line coach who says, okay, man, we're going to do it this way, and it works. And I had a, I had a, I had a tremendous season. And so then now we're going to the, to the 1981 year, and um, the top linebacker, but I know it's Hugh Green out of Pittsburgh. You know, I mean, this guy's getting all the adulations. Uh, but he's not very, he's not really big, but I mean, but the guy, it was kind of like Tom Jackson, uh, you know, uh, but maybe a little bit quicker than Tom Jackson at Denver. So anyway, what happens is that I run into uh, George Young. And I said, I said, hey, George, I said, who's the general manager? Who are we going to draft? He says, uh, he said, man, we're going to get this kid out of North Carolina. I'm like, who? He said, man, you know, this kid out of North Carolina, Lawrence Taylor, man, this, this kid can play. So I'm looking at him like he's got three eyes in his forehead. And I'm like, Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> so I said, man, we, 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 need, we need offense. You know, we had no offense. You know, we always had a good defense. You know, I said, Lawrence Taylor. So, you know, I said, okay, you know, George, you know, George had done a good job so far of, of, of you could see the roster starting to, you know, turn around. So this kid, LT, comes in, and now Bill Parcells is a defensive coordinator. And Bill was kind of one of those guys, man, that was always talking smack, but in a good way. So he pulls me over to the side, and he says, hey, gee, you're on the, book, you're on the verge of greatness. But, we're, but we need you to do some things. Hey, man, you know, you may you may go with it, and you may not want to go with it. So I said, what's that? He says, hey, man, this kid, Lawrence Taylor, man, he's got special skills. So I looked at him, man, and I was like, I said, I said, Bill, I'm tired of losing, man. I said, this losing sucks. So I said, okay, if this kid can play, I'll sacrifice, you know, some of my statistics. I'll take on double teams. I'll two-gap. I'll be a team player. And um, so this thing starts out, man, and, and I'm starting to, you know, I'm seeing some things, and, you know, and and I'm taking this kid under my wing, and he's just a little green, and, you know, and, I mean, he's, he's busting his butt in practice. And I'm saying, hey, man, you know, looks like the kid's going to be okay. So then we start the season, man, and he starts doing – spectacular things. And and then they kind of set up things to where he 
to do even more spectacular things. And they really revolutionized the position. Now, Lawrence Taylor, now, I want you guys to understand this. He was a hell of a talent. But up to that point, you never saw the right outside linebacker, which is the guy that was away from the tight end, rush the passer from a stand-up position. The guy would usually drop in coverage. I would be the outside rusher. Um we did things like he never had trail. I had the trail. He would just run down the line. Um, so we did a lot of things that were a little unconventional to take advantage of his talents. And I'll say this, it all worked out. You know, he was a rookie of the year and, I mean, you know, just tremendous player, man. He was a tremendous player. But I will say this, it was set up that way for him to be that successful. Now, had it not worked, that would have been a different thing. But it did work, and the rest is history. And, you know, just uh, a great guy, a lot of problems off the field, but really a good, I mean, really a good guy, man. I mean, I I will say that. He's really a good guy. Just, man, just seems like he, you know, sometimes he takes one step forward and then two steps back. But uh, but just just a tremendous tremendous player, man. I mean, just really kind of hard to describe, man. Uh, uh, the talent level. I mean, God, God, God gave him a bucket full. Well, real quick, I want to bring up the fact we got about thirty five seconds left on the live show. If you're listening now, when the show's over, about a half hour, forty five minutes after, you can hear the rest of our interview with Gary Jeter. And remember, next Wednesday night on The Grueling Truth, we'll have Dennis Smith, former All-Pro DB with the Denver Broncos. Now, my hey, question is Dennis. this. That's SC guy. That's another Trojan huh? there. That's a Trojan there. We got all kind that's of guys okay. from USC. Hey, hey you know but what? Tell, my, Dennis, my question, tell Dennis I said hello. Tell him I said hello, too. All right, I'll definitely do that. Um, my question is this. You had a few injury problems. You ended up going to the Los Angeles Rams where you played with one of the greatest running backs of all time, Eric Dickerson. Um, 1985, you were the NFL's comeback player of the year. Um, leads me to my question. The 1985 NFC Championship game, I always hear people say, Pete Carroll made the worst call in NFL history. If people believe that, I mean, in 1985 championship game, you guys are down 10 nothing. You get a turnover. You get the ball down, I think, inside the 10-yard line or so. And with 30 seconds left, the Rams' offense goes into a huddle. And they don't run a play to the 12-second mark. Eric Dickerson gets tackled at, like, the three-yard line. And no timeout is ever used. And John Robinson went to halftime down 10 nothing, and still had a timeout in his pocket. You want to talk about that a little bit? Not really, but I will. I <laughs> You know, oh, I know you, you do. Know. We've had this discussion before. You always say that, oh, and I know man. you want to talk about it. <laughs> well, here's here's the situation, man. You know, I mean, the, the Bears had the best defense that year. We were we were the second best. Um, uh, tremendous players on defense. Average offense by the Bears. I, I felt that if we could have got some points, any points, three points, any points on the board at halftime, we go in at worst. We're down ten three. By us going in down ten nothing, zero momentum from our offense, almost from from the standpoint where they were scared. You know, we had all those all 
all pros up front with Jackie Slater, Dennis Harris, blah, 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 blah. Eric Dixon running the ball. And they couldn't just, they couldn't bust a grade. And we were holding our own on, on, on defense, you know, playing out there in, in, in Chicago. I didn't understand what was going on, man. I think I think it was just, I think it was one time, and, you know, because J.R., man, John Robertson, great coach, man. Just, it, But I just think one of those one, one of those times where his ego got the best of it. And and instead of saying, okay, hey, let's 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 be let's think logical right here. You know, we could this could be a momentum chaser. I mean a momentum boost. And we could just get some points on the board because they had shut out the Giants the week before. They ended up shutting us out and almost shut out the, the shut out the the uh the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Patriots. So so they were on they were on quite a roll. But if we could have got some points there, man, it you know, possibly Maybe not. It could have been a different story. But, I mean, without question, a, a major blunder. I mean, and I tell you what, I was so upset at that game. My Uncle Bobby lived in Chicago. He retired with the Bears his last two years. And so uh, I had seen him before the game and seen his sons. And, uh, and matter of fact, they were all at the game. Um, I didn't even go back with the team, man. I, I just looked at these guys. We had – we had all these stars on offense. And, you know, sometimes, man, okay, you know what? I I, I, I expect it to be like a, a heavyweight fight. Like somebody would throw a punch and then we throw a punch and punches were thrown back and forth, forth by our offense and the Bears' defense. Well, let me put it like this here. Our offense punked out against the Chicago Bears. The Bears were good. They weren't that darn good, you know. And I'll say that to the day I die. They were good. But they were, but you know what? If you're good, at some point, man, you know the cream has to rise to the top. Our cream never got out of the refrigerator. I mean, you know, it just, it, it was, it was really sad. I didn't even go back. I didn't go back with the team. I ended up staying there. And one thing I thought, one thing I did, I was, at, I stayed at my uncle Bobby's house on Seventy First and Paxton. Uh, right off downtown, off Lakeshore Boulevard. I stayed up and watched every single Chicago Bears going to the Super Bowl program. It must have been till like 4 o'clock in the morning because I just knew that our time was going to be coming, maybe 86, 87, 88, and it never happened. And that was our shot, man. That was our shot. I mean, it was just like the Bears. They won in 85. They never won again. And uh, it was just, I think that if if I, if I do have a, a bitter taste in my mouth about something, even, a, even aside from that fumble, it was the fact that when you have, I mean, we had the talent. You know, we had the manpower to get something done, and we didn't get it done. And so that was what the thing that really bothers me about that. And it all stemmed from, us not getting those points, some points. You got the best running back. You got four all-pro offensive linemen, and they can't bust a great. And we end up not scoring any points, and we go into halftime down ten to nothing, and we still got a we still have a timeout in our back pocket. Inexcusable. Inexcusable. You know, for 1985, uh, with you being the comeback player of the year, what was it about that year? Um, or how? I guess I'd put it like this: um, 
as you were going through the season, you know, were you just fully healed uh, from your injury? Uh, what was it about that year that made it special for you that you were able to be the comeback player of the year? Well, I'll tell you what happened. I was traded uh, to the Rams uh, in 1983 and had a really good year. In 1984, I got married in the Bahamas. So I got married in New York and honeymoon in the Bahamas. And while on the fishing trip, man, I hurt my back, you know, trying to yank dolphin mahi-mahis into a, you know, I mean, we ran into schools with mahi-mahi. I ended up hurting my back. Um, didn't, wasn't, really wasn't in good shape to go to training camp. And so Herb Panky from Penn State, you know, we used to have battles in practice, and they were real good competitive battles. And my back just went out. And then all the doctors told me that I would never play again, and that was 1984. So really, technically, I missed the whole year. I came back at the end, man, but, you know, I mean, I was overweight, and I think I played a couple plays. And so, you know, they had pretty much wrote me off. And what really pissed me off, was here I was going into my now this would have been my ninth year I believe it was something like that they invited me to training camp they had become the training camp with the rookies now imagine that now they only have veterans coming with the rookies if they're trying to get you know guys that are injured like me or guys kind of on their last leg or whatever. And I was looking at this like, man, what in the hell am I doing here with the rookies? And I was so angry. But the one thing was I started working out on my birthday, which was January 24th. And I just said to myself, hey, God, you know what? I may not make it to training camp, but I tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust my butt until the sand runs out of the hourglass. And from that point on, man, I became – you know, I, I I could have wasted some years. I could have wasted plays. But from that point on, I didn't waste a practice, a practice down, a play in the game, a lift, film study, or anything, because I did not know when the end was going to come, because I just felt I was going to borrow time. And I just, I just continued to play with a passion. I played angry. I played upset. And and you know this thing worked out, and it, and and it just wasn't eighty five, it was eighty six, eighty seven. I mean, I had some of my best games and my best years in eighty five on, and then when I hurt my back again with the Patriots, and the doctor said that I had two bulges in my lower back, I just quit. I said, man, I can't. You know, I said the last thing I want to happen is what I don't want them to carry me off this field. I said, if anything, I said, you know, getting hurt is a part of the is a part of the game. But the last thing I wanted to happen was them to carry me off the field, and that didn't happen. And so then I just I just ended up retiring, man. And and uh, I remember Charlie Cashley. I saw him on NFL Network tonight. He was the general manager with the Washington Redskins at the time. Uh, and this would have been like I don't know, like nineteen ninety. And he called me up, and it was the first week of the NFL season. And he says, Gary, they really like to have you down in Washington. Can you still play? And, you know, I can still play. 
But I just told Charles, I said, I says, uh, I called him coach. I said, Coach Castle. I said, I appreciate the phone call. I said, I can't play anymore. And then that was it. My career was over with. I had no regrets. You know, all the sand had run out of the hourglass, and I said it was time to do something else. Well, um, we got about three or four minutes left here. I mean, one question I know Matt likes to always ask people is, who was the guy that gave you the most trouble as a defensive lineman in the NFL? I tell you what, that son of a gun, Mike Ken, man, from the Atlanta Falcons. You know, guys don't know about this guy. I used to call him Gumby. I called him Gumby because Mike was six foot seven, and he was a lean six foot seven. And you know how they say like that that the prize fights, the styles make prize fights. You know, yeah. Like Buster Douglas and Tyson, and you know, I mean, it was just, you know, he ran into the wrong wrong guy on the wrong night. Tyson did. Well, well, my style was more conducive. I mean, believe it or not, going against those big steroid guys. Guys that would try to take my head off, I would use my strict, I would use my leverage, my strength, my quickness, and I would really use their weight and their strength against them. But when I faced Mike Ken, he he was kind of one of those guys where he didn't really attack. He kind of absorbed the blow, and he was a, he was good at holding. You're allowed to hold. I mean, as long as you were holding the right spot, he had really good balance. And he was really, really difficult for me to beat. I mean, when I think about it, um, you know, Mike played about 18 years in the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons, never went to the Super Bowl. I think uh, uh, he he went to the Pro Bowl numerous times. He had a really quiet career, but he was a a tremendous player, number 78 with the Atlanta Falcons. I think he played his whole, whole year with the Atlanta Falcons, but he was my toughest. You know, he was my toughest year after year. Player that I ever had to play against, Bob Young from the uh, the old St. Louis Cardinals. Bob was uh, six foot, 300 pounds back when 300 pounds was like 30 pounds heavier than normal. And um, his brother was the strongest man in the world, and Bob wasn't far behind. And, boy, he was so, boy. He was the only guy that I can say I was scared of, but Bob never knew it. He never knew it because, man, hey, I didn't mess around with Bob. Hey, you know, if Bob tried to come get me, man, I got away from Bob. You know, there was, you know, Dan, he was so strong. You know, he was so strong. He had tremendous leverage. Bob was Bob was the tough guy. Bob was tough. He never said anything. But he was like, man, he was he was a tremendous player. You know, so I would say those two guys there, man. Those those two guys there were the guys that that uh, man. You know, oh man. You know, when I when I got Bob this week, man, this is gonna be tough. Or I or I got Mike this week. You know, I mean, got, I had to be like extra sharp. I wanted to be extra sharp. I, I wanted to make sure that the yeah. game was on. So so that was uh, those, those those guys were super tough. All right. Well, hey Gary, it was a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. I mean, anytime you want to come on the show, we'll even move it up do it during the daytime for you if you want. We'd love to hey, have I you back what, sometime. I tell you what, I usually get up at 5 in the morning. Uh, that'll be a good time. No, I'm just kidding. The, oh, well, uh, I, um, I can do 5 in the morning. I usually got to get up about 5.30 with my kids anyways. <laughs> okay. 
Hey, you know what? I tell you what, it was an honor. Um, it was. A, I, I'm honored. You know, anytime that you can be remembered for something that you did, like almost a lifetime ago, uh, you know, and you get the opportunity to tell people, uh, you know, I mean, uh, that, 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 that's an honor. And, uh, you know, I, I was just so happy it worked out. You know, we got a half hour in last week, and, and we got an hour and a half. I think we got an hour in this week. And uh, I tell you what, anytime you guys, 45 minutes, anytime you guys, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not one, uh, I'm not shy about talking. You know, so so anytime anytime you guys would uh, like to have me on, I hey you know hey I'll tell you the truth. You know, it may not be what you want to hear, but it'll be the truth. Well, that's why they call the show the Grilling Truth, Gary. You're perfect for it. Okay, well that's well that's good. I look forward to it, man. And uh, hey, man, you guys do a great job, man. You know, keep up the great work. All right, thanks a lot, Gary. Thank you, man. Thanks, Gary. God bless. All right, just remember, next Wednesday night, 11 o'clock Eastern time, 10 o'clock Central, we'll have Dennis Smith, former pro bowler from the Denver Broncos.